stand amazed at the fact that what we're reading was was written hundreds of years ago uh, to a group of people that obviously we've never met but yet are just like us. And the word that is in it is just for us as it was for them. So we pray that you would able to enable us to hear it as you enabled them, that it would work in us as it was to work in them, that we as part of the continuity of the body of Christ would continue to reflect your glory that you might be known. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Colossians in chapter 4, please. Colossians chapter 4. I want to read verses 2 through uh, 6. I'm only going to take up verse 2. Uh, we'll leave the rest for another time. I'm going to, going to suspend Colossians just for a bit, beginning in Advent, and preach some sermons from Isaiah during that season, and then after the first of the year, pick up the end of Colossians, and then move on to something else. But that's just the plain. Colossians in chapter 4, please, verse 2. Hear the word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best of the Best use of the time, that your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As I said, I just want to take up, if God will help me, this verse to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with, with thanksgiving. It's not unusual at all for Paul as he comes to an end of one of his letters to speak of prayer. If you're familiar with his companion letter of Ephesians, he does that as well. He, he, he lays out some theology there. He lays out how they're to live. And then he talks to them about praying. Uh, he does a similar thing here. He begins, as he does in many of his letters, by praying. But, but then he moves to speak to us of Christ and then how we're to live. And then he ends by talking to us about praying, not a coincidence at all, not just an accident, not arbitrary. It isn't like he's trying to throw one more thing in there because he has some extra, extra parchment that he can fill. It, it, it's, it's, it's part of all of this. Because, you see, he begins by praying that they live worthy of Christ. He speaks to them of what it means to live worthy of Christ. And now he says, take up this praying yourself. If you want to live worthy of Christ, understand it's not only going to take my instruction in, 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 in the context of your doing, but it's also going to take your praying. Because prayer is one of the means by which God fulfills his purposes. We often think prayer is a means by which we get what we want from God. But it really is a means through which he accomplishes his ends. He ordains prayer to be used in a way that will accomplish his will. See, when there's an end involved, when something has to be done, there normally means to get to it. If you want to do X, it may mean that you first have to do A, B, and C in order to get there. And so if God is going to produce an end, our holiness, for instance, then there are means by which 
uh, he will also ordain, or means that he'll also ordain instruments to get us there. So his word is a means by which he produces holiness in us. We read it, we receive grace by it, we learn to understand what holiness really is, we understand um, um, what God requires of us, what would be pleasing to him, how we're really to live. That helps us. Without it, we don't know this. So that's a means, an instrument, that he uses to get us to this end. And not only that, he he puts within us by his spirit a desire to be holy. Not only that, he calls us then to pray. And as we pray, you see, we're casting our dependence upon him. And that's part of the the way, an instrument that he uses in order to get strength to us, to get help to us, in order that we can cast our care upon him and, and show our dependence upon him to be humble so that we can receive from him. The scripture says that God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. Do you understand that the one who is prideful will not really pray because the one who is prideful really doesn't think he or she needs help and so this they might read the word and and get and get instruction from it and say okay i'm going to go do that leave me alone god i'll prove to you i can really do this he says no 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 if you're really going to do this and you really need to pray in fact Once I've told you that you're to live worthy of Christ, once I've told you how you're to live, the first place that ought to send you is to your knees. Because you're going to realize your own inability. You're going to realize your own bankruptcy. You're going to realize that that you can't. And so you're going to say, if this is who I'm to be, if this is how I'm to live, then God, you must help me. And so prayer, you see, is a means that God uses to fulfill, to achieve his ends. In this regard, we'll see later in verse 3, 4, and so forth, prayer will be used by Paul, they're praying, as a means by which he will be enabled, strengthened, have wisdom to, and opportunities for the preaching of the word so the gospel can expand. But as we see it as a tie-in, he says we're to live these lives of holiness, or to stop the indulgence of the flesh, remember, from the end of chapter 2, We're to set our minds upon Christ. We're to put off sexual immorality and passions and so forth. We're to put off anger and slander and malice and all of that. We're to put on Christ. We're to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bear with each other and to forgive each other. It's the peace of Christ that's to rule among us. It's the the love of God that's to, to, to bind all this together. It's the word of Christ that's to inform all of our speech. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Children are to obey their parents. Fathers aren't to exasperate their children, but to encourage them so that they won't be discouraged. Fathers are to give their children hope. Slaves, workers are to obey, to submit to their masters, to their bosses. Bosses are to treat their employees. And in, in a way that's just and kind and all of that. And we read about that. And again, if we're prideful, we'll read that and go, okay, I'll go do that. That'll be fine. But if we get it, we understand what God is calling us to, but then we say, I'm in trouble. How will I ever live like this? If that's life, how will it ever come to pass in me? And so 
Paul says, all right, your first hint, your first help, your first clue at this point is to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, that is in prayer, with thanksgiving. Other versions that you might have might simply say, devote yourself to prayer. So you get a sense that prayer is to be an integral part of our lives. It isn't to be a piece that we add on, but it's to be really key for us and in us. That's why Paul in another place can say pray without ceasing. Now we know what he means by that. We know he doesn't mean that you have your eyes closed and your head bowed all the time. And so you're always to be praying in that sense. But he says always understand that you live from a sense of praying, a sense of prayer, which is a sense of dependence upon God, a sense of understanding your need, His call, and His goodness and wisdom and power to help you. And so you're going to be always casting yourself upon Him. That's the very attitude of your life. Yeah, there'll be formal times of prayer. There should be times that you set aside to pray during the course of a day, but there's always this sense of attitude because there's always this sense of need. Because you get it, because you understand that what God is calling to us, calling us to is impossible for us, that we need Him. And so prayer then becomes a means of grace as we cast ourselves upon Him. It's like the author of Hebrews speaks of, of, of our praying as coming to this throne of grace. Verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That means we have weaknesses. And thus we pray, you see. And so he says, don't worry, you're going to feel weak. You're going to have this sense of weakness and maybe even fear as you face the life that's ahead. But he says, don't worry, there's one who understands you. And the good news about the one who understands you is he's conquered all of that. See, I may understand you, but I'm not that much help. Because I'm just like you, and I have all those same kinds of weaknesses. And, and, and so I, if I'm going to help you, all I can do is, is, is say, talk to him, right? Okay? And, and I might be able to help you say, I've talked to him, and he really helps. And that may help you. But, but, but he knows our weaknesses, but he's also overcome them, you see. And so he has the strength to help. And so... Uh, he, he, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we yet without sin. He overcame all of that. Let us then, that is because of all that, with confidence go to him. With confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now a wonderful expression, throne of grace. Throne, you think of power and rule. And grace, you think, all right, what's ruling here is Grace. What's ruling here isn't condemnation. What's ruling here isn't, isn't, isn't judgment in that sense. What's ruling here is his grace to help in time of need. What's ruling here, what rules Christ as he sits on that throne, the way in which he rules is to say, I, I understand you. Let me help. I understand. I will help. And so he says, so come to this throne where there's sovereign rule, and it's a throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time, in time of need. So you see that, that we're to continue steadfastly. So this continua, continuation, it, it isn't to be a once and done. It isn't to be a once every so often. It's to be a, a real defining part of our lives. 
And we're to be steadfast and hold on to it. Never stop. We're to persevere in it. In, in some translations that use the word to devote yourself to prayer, we realize that when we devote ourselves to something, it means that we sacrifice for it. It means it's a huge priority for us. It means that we arrange our lives around it. If we're devoted to our friends, then you would be a person who arranges your life around your friends. If you devote yourself to sports, people know what that means. It means that that you won't miss a game. You you devote yourself to it. That's what devote means. And he says, here's what you really should be devoting yourself to. You should be devoting yourself to praying and being watchful. That is to be alert. Don't go to sleep. Be alert watching. The, The watchman over the city was always looking. Always looking for the enemy so he could sound alert. Always protecting the ones that were behind him, that he loved. And, and, and so he was always watchful. And so we're to be watchful in prayer. Watching for opportunities to pray. Watching for opportunities of need. And say, okay, now's the time to pray. You see. And watchful for God. And always then with thanksgiving. We're to be, to be watchful in that sense. Now we talk about praying, it's, it's mysterious I know and I can't even hope to plumb its depths. But we ask the question, what is really praying? What's it mean to really, what's it, what's it mean to pray? And in a very simplest understanding I think it's this and that is it's talking to God. It's talking to Him. It isn't listening to Him per se. We listen to God when we read the scripture. So when people talk about listening prayer, it's a little bit confusing. Now there's meditative prayer because we're thinking upon God. But it isn't as if when we sit to pray, we're going to stop and kind of quiet and say, okay, God, talk to me, you know, and then I'll talk. It's, it's talking to God. That's what praying means. Reading the Bible is listening to God. So if you want to listen to him, read and think. But when we pray, it's talking. When Jesus' disciples came to him and said, teach, me to, teach us to pray, he said, say this. He didn't say, listen. <laughs> he said, say this. So, so our praying, that's part of this conversation. God speaks through his word by his spirit illumining that in us, making it real to us. But yet when we pray, we talk. That's when we make requests known. The shorter catechism of our confessional standards, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, puts it like this. This is question number 98 for those of you keeping score at home. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. All right? Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. It's a talking. We're offering something up and and it's our desires that we're offering up. But notice the qualifier on offering up our desires for things agreeable to his will. And we talk about God's will, it's, it's a bit complicated because there's at least two aspects of God's will that we really have to think about. One, we talk of his, his preceptive will, that his precepts, his commands, his desires, the things that ought to be done. We know we're to love, we know we're to forgive, we know to be merciful, we know we're to be kind, we know, to, we know we're to be compassionate, we know that we're to be pure, we know that we're to be holy. All of these things that he commands us to. But there's also a sense of God's will in which we call his decrees. God decrees that which will come to pass. Nothing can come to pass 
without God ordaining it, allowing it, saying, yes, this can happen. He can stop anything. He can start anything. He's sovereign over all things. And, and often when we think of God's will, what we want to know is what's going to happen. We want to get into the inner recesses of God's mind and say, okay, tell me the future. Tell me what's going to take place here. Are you going to heal this person or not? Is the market going to go up or isn't it? Should I buy this car or that car? What I really want to know is, is this one going to work or is that one going to work? Which is going to be the cheapest for me, the most economical for me? This house, that house, where will I be happiest? We want to know, how, we want to know the outcomes. He doesn't give us that. He tells us what ought. And it's that will we're to pray. It's that will that we're, going, that we're to come to know. Whatever happens in the midst of that, we're to cling to that which is right. You should always pray to love. Always pray to forgive. Always pray for mercy. Always pray that, God, that, that we see real justice as it's to come that's pleasing to God. Always to pray that he's reflected. His glory is seen. And we don't know what's really going to happen. I mean, we realize that when two countries are at war and there's Christians on either side, <laughs> how do you pray? Will you pray for those things which, which are consistent with the will of God, knowing that one side will lose and one side will win? We pray for those things which are consistent with his, with his will. I suppose it's a little bit like this. If your boss assigns you a task... And then at the end says, now remember, I'll help you with anything that you need. So you understand that task and you begin to think it through. And then you go, I need help from my boss. What do you go ask your boss for? You go ask your boss for those things which you think are agreeable to his will that are consistent with the task. And you'll say, could you help me in this area? Oh, sure, like that. Then you wouldn't necessarily be utterly surprised. If he helped you in a way that, hmm, I didn't think he'd do that. Why wouldn't it surprise you? Well, because you might think, he probably knows more about this task and how it fits into everything else than I do. So while the help that he gave me may not have been exactly what I expected, still, I'll trust him because he's the boss and he knows the bigger picture. Well, there's a sense in which we go to God for things agreeable, we believe, to his will in this. And, and then maybe, or maybe not, that particular thing happens, and, and we, we're, well, we trust him. That he has the bigger picture. He knows how this fits into everything. And we simply trust him. We go, we cast our dependence upon him. For things which he's revealed to us are consistent with his nature and his character and who he is. And then we trust him. I trust that he's at work, trusting this is best, and trusting we'll see it someday in the end. And we come, of course, with these things, our desires that are agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. We don't come arrogantly. We don't come saying, well, you should listen to me because I'm worthy, uh, because I'm a human being, and and God, you deserve, uh, I deserve that you give me this audience and listen. No, we, we don't come that way. You come saying, God, I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve any of this at all. So I come in the name of Jesus. I come in the name of Christ. I'm clinging to him. And, and, and he's the only reason that I can be in your presence. We come in the name of Christ. With confession of our sin, we recognize our sin. And we come thankful as well. So in all of that, you see, 
So then the question is, what keeps us from praying? What, what would keep us from, from really being devoted to praying? Well, some have questions about prayer because it, it is mysterious. And we say, well, if God is sovereign over all things, then why pray? If God is omniscient and knows everything, why pray? If God's going to do that which is according to his will anyway, why really pray? Well, it's interesting that the Bible really never addresses any of those in the context of prayer. In fact, the Bible clings to all of those in the context of prayer. That is, those are the very things that should motivate us to pray. If God isn't sovereign over all things, why ask him to do anything? If he can't, then why do we pray to him? But if he is sovereign, we go to him and say, God, you're sovereign over all things. You can. And that's good. If he's omniscient, if, if he knows everything, wouldn't it be scary to you to go to God and say, God, let me tell you this. And God said, wow, I didn't know that. I just really appreciate knowing that now. It changes everything. No, what's comforting is when we go to him and he says, I think I know more about this than you do. I appreciate your heart on this. But I'm going to work a few things. Come back in a week. You'll have a different prayer. Because he knows more than we do. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I, I really love talking to people who know more than I do. It's really helpful. And so as we go to him and we talk, we realize he knows more than we do. And that's a good thing. That, that should inspire our praying, not, not diminish our praying. And that he's going to do his will is a, is a good thing as well. To know that we can go and talk and yet still the best thing is going to be done in the midst of, in the midst of all of this. Because you see, part of our praying is, is the sense of relationship with God, the sense of intimacy with God. And if we're not praying, it's likely that is lacking. It's likely that we don't really have a sense of his presence with us. I don't know if you have any friends, that you, people you call friends, and then you turn around and you realize, I haven't spoken to them in 10 years. Yet, yet I talk about them as if they're my friend, as if I know them. But, but then don't you start to question your friendship at that point? I mean, what, what is really this friendship? How intimate can you be with someone you, you, you have no compulsion to say anything to? And same with God. How can you not talk to him? often said, how can you not talk to God when your kids are in trouble? How can you not talk to God when difficulty befalls you? How can you not talk to God when someone says that your spouse is going to die? How can you not talk to God when you get a certain report that says things are not looking good in your body? How can you not talk to God when things at work are falling apart? How can you not talk to God in those situations? How can you just read about it and just go do stuff and you miss this whole thing? Don't you? Isn't there some compulsion in us to... Cry out to him at these points, though he be sovereign. And you say, yes, you're sovereign over this. God, why is this happening? You know all these things. God, what's going on? How can we not cry out to him? Martin Luther put it like this. He says, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to make shoes, so is the business of Christians to pray. So this is who we are. That's what comes from us out of our being and then we realize this as Jesus taught his disciples to pray began with this expression our father in heaven 
holy or hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now why is it that we would pray such a thing? That God's will, that God's kingdom would come. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God's kingdom is his rule. So we're praying that God's rule would come. His government, in a sense, would come. That we would be citizens of a kingdom that was ruled by God. Now, why would we want that? Why would we pray that? We pray because that would be the desires of our hearts. What could be better than that? And we look at the world in which we live... And we read about the kingdom of God. We look at the world that is. And we experience some of God's rule in the context of our lives. Compare the two. Which would you rather? For every believer it would be the kingdom of God. The rule of God. And so there's something that compels us in the midst of that. To look at the world in which we live. And to look even into our own lives and say. This isn't, this isn't shaping up. This isn't consistent with the kingdom of God. God, that's what we need. So we read the paper and we realize that the world in which we live isn't like the kingdom of God. And rather complain about the world in which we live, would it not be better to cry out to God that he brings his kingdom? Shouldn't that move us and motivate us to say, God, I see what's wrong. Could you write it? Well, Paul writes in the church in Rome, he says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. But it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're praying will come. Righteousness. The people will be right with God. And people will be right with each other. That there'll be righteousness. That we will live in a way that's right, that's honoring to God, that's glorifying to Him, that reflects Him. And so that should be so in us as believers in Christ that when we don't see that, we should be crying out to Him, God, bring this righteousness. We're to live in peace. We're to live in peace with God. We're to live in peace with each other. We don't see that. In fact, even in our own lives, even though we belong to Him, there's times of hostility that we feel with God and, and even with each other. And, and so where is that to move us? It's to move us to pray that God would bring peace. And there's to be joy. You see, there's to be a sense of joy in the context of our lives. That's what it will be when the kingdom comes in its fullness. There will be real joy. And we don't see that, experience that. And So where do we go with that? Where do we go when there's despair? Where do we go when there's discouragement? Where do we go when there's depression? Do we just simply live in the midst of that? No. There's something in us that says, no. Joy. And we cry out to God for his kingdom to come. His will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And and, and we're really praying for the consummation, you see, of of this kingdom. To come, that should be so ingrained in us, so much we desire that, that we pray it and we devote ourselves, we devote ourselves to that. So you see, we pray because we certainly see our need and we see the call of God on our lives. We see our own bankruptcy. We realize that we need His help, so we pray. So, so that should be an ongoing part of our lives. If it isn't, it's likely to mean that we're becoming apathetic. We really don't get what God has called us to. We really don't get how needy we are. 
And so we cease to pray. We sort of skip that step thinking, oh, well, I'll just get on with it. And then we don't. But well, because we need him. And then there should be this thing in us about the kingdom. There should be this thing in us that says, no, I know what it ought to be. And I know that God is the only one who can bring what ought to be. So how can I not cry out to him? God, bring that in my life. Bring that in my spouse's life. Bring that in my children's lives. Bring that in my friends' lives. Bring that in the world in which we live. How can that not be the cry of our hearts? Here's some help in Scripture, some significant encouragement. For instance, Matthew in chapter 7. Verse 7. Through verse 11. I, I won't tell you that. Uh, well, I will. It's silly. But I always think about going to the 7-11. That's how I remember this passage. Uh, because it's about prayer. So it's my little 7-11. Um, ask, Jesus said. It will give and you seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, give good, good things to those who ask him? You get the sense, we know this passage, you get the sense of, 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 of continuing on, this word ask and this word seek, this word knock, or in what's called a a, a uh, continuous presence in Greek. It's an imperative, it's a command, but it's in the present tense. And in the Greek language, when something was in the present tense, it was always present. So it was always going on. So we would read this, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. So there's this sense of, 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 of continuing being steadfast. There's also this sense of escalation, of asking, then seeking, then knocking. So you see the passion with which all of this. So you, you, you find here Jesus is saying, I want you to continue steadfastly in prayer. I want you to be devoted to prayer. And, and it's not, again, coincidental but very intentional that this comes at the end of Jesus' teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this sermon that if you read it, you will find yourself first empty. Because it will challenge you and call you to a life that you can't even imagine. It calls you to be one who is poor in spirit, really humble. It calls you to be one who mourns over sin and seeks only the comfort of God calls you to be one who is meek, understands who he is in the presence of God and is humbled by that. One who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. One who is merciful. One who is pure in heart. One who is a peacemaker. One who rejoices when persecuted. One who blesses those who persecute and not curse one who is salt of the world, who preserves the very world and brings a sense of preservation so as to limit its corruption. One who is the light of the world through our lives. People can see God. And he goes on and on. He speaks to us about our anger. He says, don't be angry. He speaks to us about our faithfulness. He says, don't even lust. He speaks to us about our word, to be honest, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. He speaks to us about our generosity. 
He speaks to us about our love even for our enemies. He speaks to us about righteous acts being done uh, selflessly and in the presence of God only for his eyes. He speaks to us about not worrying but casting our troubles upon God, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He speaks to us of all of these things and and if you read that and you say, okay, I'm going to go do this, your first response will be, I can't. So Jesus says, okay. Here's the way your life is to be that. You get it. You understand the call upon your life. Now what I want you to do is get on your knees first. In fact, even when you're walking, be on your knees. In fact, even when you're talking, be on your knees. In fact, even when you're at work, be on your knees. Figuratively, in that sense. Always knowing your dependence upon me. Always casting yourself upon me. Always asking, God, make me holy. Always seeking holiness. Always knocking so that, because that's the very passion of your life. And trust me, God says, I'll give it to you. And you say, when? And he said, well, I'm not telling this is a lifelong endeavor. And it's a lifelong endeavor because you never get these things in your own strength. You never, get, you never get competent in these things. We never stop being dependent upon God. The, the, our lives never stop needing Him. Great passage, Psalm 81.10, verse that I live on. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. And I will fill it. And he says, I want you to live your whole life like a baby bird. I want your mouth to be bigger than your head when you stand before me. Because when your mouth is bigger than your head, you're saying, I need more from you than I have to offer. And so that's how we come to God. And he says, well, stay that way. And I will help you. Luke. In chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And they will answer uh, from within, uh, Do not bother me. The door is shut now. And my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything, I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because, of his, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And, the one, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. But father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now you get this sense, you, get this, you see the picture a uh, person comes to a friend, it's midnight, hospitality says, I've got to feed you, I have no food. That compels me to go to somebody who has food, the only person who has food. They have food, they have bread, and I need it, I have to have it, I'll be embarrassed without it, uh, my guest will go without food, I can't not have this food. And so what does this person do? They go to this friend, so-called, and says, please give me food. And the friend says, I don't want to, I'm comfortable in bed, and it's too late, just go away. And finally, the friend relents because you just, <laughs> just won't stop. And the self-centered, self-righteous calculation is, if I give them the bread, at least they'll leave and I'll get some sleep tonight. So that's the basis upon which the bread is given. 
And so then Jesus goes on to this thing to say, well, we'll keep, you know, be persevering. And you say, well, wow, does that mean God is reluctant to give? And he says, no, 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 you missed the point. This is a parable of contrast. This is saying God isn't like that friend. The point is, if this friend can be compelled to give you bread when they don't want to, want to, how much more will God who wants to give you the Holy Spirit, his own presence, to make you holy and to help you. He says, but, but, but it takes perseverance. Why? Because life is daily. It isn't that we pray once, get it, and we're on our way. It's that it's constant. Because it's a constant need. Because it's a constant calling. And so it's all the time. We, we never get away from God. How silly it would be to think that. Luke 18. Similar but with an interesting twist. Verse 1, and he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What a fascinating sentence. To say the way that you don't lose heart is by continuing to pray. And if you've stopped praying, it means that you must have lost heart. Now, for those of us, myself included, who don't pray as much as we know we ought, that just sticks a dagger in. Have I lost heart? Is that why I don't pray? So Jesus says, I want to tell you a parable so that you'll continue to pray so you won't lose heart. Certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So you got the deal. It's a woman, something's happened to her. It's been unjust, clearly. Uh, you get the sense that she's desperate, that, 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 there's, that, that she needs this justice against her adversary. If she doesn't, she'll be destroyed. I mean, you get that sense about it. And so she comes to this judge to get justice. Now she's fighting, clearly, a difficult battle because he's unjust. He doesn't fear God. Nor does he have any respect for people. He's just utterly selfish. And, and so you see the, the, the problem that she has. So she says, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Again, what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point that this is that God isn't like that. If you can get justice out of somebody like that, how much more can you get what you need out of God? who is pro-justice. But then this by Jesus. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Verse 7 and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In other words, why don't you cry to him day and night for justice? Why don't you cry to him day and night for what you need? I mean, if, 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 if you were in this widow's situation, you would even go to this unjust, unrighteous, unholy, self-centered, selfish judge for it. So why don't you go to God for these things which ought to be? Why don't you go to God for these things which are godly? 
Will he delay long over you? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? See, the context here is Jesus is talking to Pharisees, the Jewish people, and they've asked him about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is you know, playing with them a bit. He says, well, the kingdom's here because I'm here. But then he also says it's still going to come. What's he mean? Well, we know what he meant. He meant that he is the king of the kingdom and in his presence is the kingdom of God. But he was going to ascend. And there would be a delay then in the coming of the completion of the kingdom when we'd see everything in its perfection. He would send his spirit. So we'd see the kingdom in some sense, but not in its fullness. And so he, he, says, he says, no, the question I have, Jesus said, is will I see faith when I come back? Well, what will be the evidence of faith when he comes back? People praying and not losing heart. And what will propel them to pray all this time while the king is absent? What will propel them to pray all the while that the king is absent? Number one is because they know the heart of the king. And they desire to satisfy the heart of the king, but they know they can't. And so they beg the king to come and to help them, which he does by his spirit in this time. But also this, they know what is pleasing to the king and they want to see what is pleasing to the king. Righteousness and peace and joy on the earth and they don't see it. And so what propels them to pray, what propels us to pray, unless we've lost heart... God, we want these things too. Because nothing can satisfy but righteousness, peace, and joy. Nothing can satisfy but, but, but that which pleases you. Nothing can satisfy but your very presence. And so we're compelled to pray. With thankfulness. And to be watchful in our praying with thankfulness. Watchfulness in the sense of being alert. There's an old hymn called Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Remember that one? Some of us do. We sang it in various places. Not here generally. Some about the tune. But anyway, uh, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. But it's interesting. I believe it's a third verse. There's two versions of it. One, I think, which is newer and one which I think is older. And I think that they're separated by age because I always like the older one. The newer one goes like this. Put on the gospel armor. Put on each piece with prayer. Now that's okay. You remember the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6? The breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the feet of the gospel of peace, and the sword of the spirit and all of that. There's a sense in which we put all of that with, on with prayer. Because we say, God, help me understand the truth. So I'm putting it on. God, God, help me be assured of my salvation. Enable me to do that. So I'm putting it on. God, uh, cause me to appropriate the very righteousness of Christ in my life so I can live. and Give me, the, give me faith and, and strengthen my faith. All of that's good too. But there's a, another version of that, that verse that goes, put on the gospel armor and watching unto prayer. Now, how is that different? I think like this, that it's by having put on the truth, by having put on the helmet of salvation, by having taken up the shield of faith, by having shot our feet with the gospel, by having taken up the sword of the spirit, then we're ready to pray. 
Because you see, what continues us in prayer is not only the need for all of these, but also the presence of all of these. The presence being, when I know the truth, the way we put on the truth is just pray God will help us, but, but we study the truth. You want to put on the truth, read the Bible and believe it. You want to be assured, come to the cross and meditate upon the cross and see what he has done and trust him. I put on the helmet of salvation. Trust him. You want, to, you want to appropriate the righteousness of Christ. Meditate upon Christ and what he's done and his righteousness, not yours. And once you've done all of that, you'll be a praying person because you'll be watchful. Because you'll know about the enemy and you'll know about the ones that God loves and you'll stand there watching, praying that the enemy would be subdued, that the ones that God loves will be protected. Would you be watchful, alert at all times? Let's pray, let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. And all with thankfulness. Because you see, thankfulness undergirds all of this. As, as Paul's been writing this, this letter, thankfulness has, has just permeated everything. I won't go through every verse in Colossians that he, he, he throws in the word thankfulness. But he, he begins his praying with them like this. Verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So it's fascinating to me that, that Paul doesn't say, Thank you for your faith. Thank you for your love. But he gives God thanks that they have faith and love. Why? Because he knows that that came from God. So he's thanking the giver of the gift. And so that permeates. In verse 12, he writes that we're to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you, qualified us, to share in the inheritance in the saints. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We give God thanks always. Why? Because we know that we were once in the kingdom of darkness and now we're in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. And the question is, how did we get from darkness to light? Not because we could see our way clear, right? Because we were in darkness. When you're in darkness, you don't know how to get out. In fact, this kind of darkness is such that we don't even want to get out. We think everything's fine in the world in which we live. The only way to get out is if somebody comes and rescues us, takes us out. Another image the Bible gives that we're slaves to sin. The only way that we can become, uh, we can lose that slavery is to, is, is to, to take the, have somebody take these shackles off. Another image is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The only way to become alive is for somebody to give us life. And so we need to realize that we're thankful because God has done this. We haven't. And my sweet little wife was in a coma because she was sedated. She was in darkness. We asked her many times, do you want to come out of this? <laughs> and of course she couldn't respond. Why? Because she was sedated. She had no will of her own. She would just stay there. So the sedation was taken off by somebody else. When she came to, she said, thanks. She realized it was the work of another. 
Unless we are, our salvation is, you see, we're sedated by sin, we're in this coma, we, we're in darkness, we're dead, we're, we're shackled, we're enslaved, we, we can't get ourselves out. But God does something. He takes us and he transfers us from one kingdom to the other, one rule to the other. He says, darkness will no longer rule you, my son will, my light will. And so, so we give him thanks, always thankful. And the person who is thankful prays. Not only to give thanks, which is part of that prayer, but because a thankful person says, God, what you've given is exactly what I need. God, what you've given is the only thing that satisfies. God, what you've promised to give in the future is the only thing of value. Therefore, please give it. Thankful people pray. Thankful people are watchful. It's coming. Watchful people devote themselves to prayer. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us. We are a needy people. You've called us, God, to walk in holiness. We pray that you would enable us to do that. Give us strength. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Enable us to put off that which is inconsistent with you, Jesus. Your rule in our lives. Enable us to put that, put on that which is part and parcel of your rule, that which pleases you. That we might endure. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that in your coming, that you would establish your kingdom so that you would be glorified and all would see, all would see that you are the righteous king. So this morning we pray especially for those who are in difficulty. We pray for Scott and Eileen Huffman. Thank you for preserving in these last few days her life and the time that we've spent with her. And I pray that you continue to work in such a way that in her life you are glorified. Give her strength. Give her strength, Father, to follow you, to love you, to trust you in these days, and Scott and the children too. Pray for Michelle, Father. She has surgery this week. Be with her. Grant her great strength and faith in you thank you for the work that you're doing in Mel Rains God to restore him continue we pray to do that God we realize our weakness please help us you're the only one who can and thus we continue to come to you at every moment for our weakness is always before us give us strength that we may overcome temptation that we would not sin Give us wisdom to know how it is that we're to live. And may your spirit lead us at every turn. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.
response to our benediction will be to sing together. And so please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together, let us sing. Whose priceless blood has ransomed me Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails And hung him on that judgment tree I will glory in my Redeemer Who crushed the power of sin and death My only Savior before the Holy Judge the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. And I will glory in my Redeemer, my life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place. The foes are mighty and rush upon me. My feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with love and kindness, his triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, His face forever to behold, His face forever to behold, His face forever to behold. May go in peace.